Section 15 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 1, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5, William Chillingworth, The Bible, The Religion of Protestants, Part 3. 2. The Religion of Protestants is Chillingworth's great work, by which alone he can be said to be remembered. It sums up all his thought, and has taken its place in English literature as a monument of Christian genius. His other writings are comparatively unimportant, as they are comparatively unknown. A few sermons, nine in all, a series of tracts under the name of Additional Discourses, most of them mere sketches, or studies for his great work, and a brief fragment, more significant than the rest, entitled The Apostolical Institution of Episcopacy Demonstrated, comprise the whole. The sermons are marked by the vigor both of thought and language which is always characteristic of him, but are not in any special manner interesting or valuable. They contain nothing which would have preserved his name from oblivion, and but little to remind us of the bold thought of the religion of Protestants. In a still less degree than the few sermons of Hooker attract notice beside the laws of ecclesiastical polity, do Chillingworth's sermons serve to draw attention away from the work with which his name has become identified. The tract on episcopacy possesses a distinct value, as showing the liberal direction of the author's mind on a subject in which his feelings, education, and the eventful turns of his life strongly interested him. He had not only been trained an Episcopalian in the school of Laud, but all his natural love of order and ardent affection to the royal cause had enlisted his sympathies on behalf of the existing government of the Church. But no degree of personal prepossession is able to obscure in him the light of rational thought on this any more than on the general subject of religion. Episcopacy is to him, in its essentials, quote, no more but this, an appointment of one man of eminent sanctity and sufficiency to have the care of all the churches within a certain precinct or diocese, and furnishing him with authority, not absolute or arbitrary, but regulated and bounded by laws, and moderated by joining to him a convenient number of assistants, to the extent that all the churches under him may be provided of good and able pastors, and that both of pastors and people, conformity to laws and performance of their duties may be required. Such a form of government, he maintains, is not repugnant to the government settled in and for the church by the epistles, nor is it incompatible with the reformation of any evil, either in church or state, or the introduction of any good, which it may be desirable to introduce. The brief argument of the tract is confined to the demonstration of the first of these propositions, and is throughout of the most moderate and reasonable character. He quotes the evidence of two great defenders of presbytery, Molinaeus, du Moulin, and Beza, in favor of episcopacy being the recognized order of church government presently after the apostles' times, and draws the usual inference from this admitted antiquity on behalf of its being the institution of the apostles themselves. With the validity of such an inference it is unnecessary to concern ourselves. It appeared to Chillingworth's mind, in every respect, a fair and dispassionate one, in the light of which the anti-episcopal dogmatism of the Puritan Presbyterian party seemed utterly unreasonable. To vindicate the institution of episcopacy from the abuse of this party, and show its claims to a rational historic standing, is the sole aim of his argument, in which aim he is completely successful. Any further claim for it, as a positive jus divinum, is inconsistent alike with his object in the tract and with the whole tone of his thought and reasoning. It now remains for us to consider his chief work, The Religion of Protestants, A Safe Way to Salvation. This work presents itself to our examination in two points of view. 
first in its general intellectual and literary character and secondly in its substantive argument and meaning or in other words in reference to the great principles which it sets forth it might be further considered in its controversial details some of which are aside from the main purpose of the work and well deserving of attention as illustrative of its logical method and force but as our purpose in these sketches is not to revive controversy or to adjust rivalries long since forgotten but only to fix the significant ideas which have influenced the course of religious thought and permanently enriched it it is unnecessary as it would be useless for us to go over the particular points in the polemic between our author and his jesuit opponent further than it may be important to do so for our general purpose one the religion of protestants claims first to be considered by us as one of the most notable productions of english literature what are its claims to occupy such a position what are the distinguishing characteristics of its thought and style in judging it from our modern standard in such matters we are struck at first by a certain imperfection and clumsiness of form arising out of its controversial purpose the reader is naturally anxious to get into the heart of the subject and see what a writer of such name has to say about it what are the strong points of his argument and how he lays them down and expounds them in relation to one another in a modern book on the subject of any remarkable ability we would probably find ourselves thus carried to the centre of interest at once and made to recognize the great lines of thought characteristic of the opposing sides and the claims that the one rather than the other has to his following the modern mind whatever it may have lost has certainly gained in organizing power in the capacity of surveying a subject in its whole outline and disposing of it in proportion to the relative importance of its details in controversial literature particularly this has been a great gain it has tended to fix attention upon the real differences of thought out of which all minor differences spring and to deliver the reader from mazes of detailed argumentation which however ably conducted have often little or no bearing upon the main points at issue in chillingworth's time controversy and especially theological controversy was still a conflict of details it is one of his excellences that he is superior in this respect to many of his contemporaries yet with all his advance the religion of protestants suffers greatly from being in form a detached reply to a forgotten book the reader has to wade through in successive chapters the arguments of the author of charity maintained his jesuit opponent not and in many cases also the statements of dr potter to which the jesuits work was a reply the real pith of the subject is only reached sometimes after all these repeated processes of statement and reply when the author is at liberty to follow the unembarrassed course of his own thought the work opens with a preface addressed to the author of charity maintained mainly in answer to a pamphlet entitled by him a direction to n n this preface as we formerly remarked is full of interest for the light which it throws on the formation of chillingworth's opinions and is marked by great dignity and elevation of tone then follows the preface of the author of charity maintained and chillingworth's reply to this anticipatory of many points upon which he afterwards dwells more fully then in succession through seven chapters the argument of his jesuit opponent is given first and his answer in detail follows every point is carefully met and amidst so many minute particulars of argument there is necessarily a good deal of recurrence of thought the reader gets impatient of interruptions and of the multitude of steps by which he advances to the close of the controversy it is obvious that only rare attributes of thought and style could have risen above these disadvantages of form and given unity and life to such an accumulated mass of controversy but we have scarcely opened the book when we see evidence of these we find ourselves in contact with an intellect of singular strength and brightness 
of clearly penetrative and powerful thoughtfulness which grasps the whole subject and moves unconfused amidst its details strength and earnestness genuine grasp of mind and large intelligence are chillingworth's highest characteristics some minds have shown more extent of scope and certainly far more richness and glow of speculative comprehension in conducting a great argument in these respects hooker is incomparably superior and jeremy taylor in his liberty of prophesying moves with a freer and more sustained air but neither hooker nor taylor equals our author in mere mass and energy of mind and the masculine robustness and downright honesty generally associated with such simple strength the very height at which more imaginative writers sometimes soar gives a certain indistinctness to their thought it gains in colouring and impressiveness at the expense of plain outline and meaning but the meaning of chillingworth is always plain and always strong he evades no difficulties and never flinches for fear of consequences he grapples heartily with every statement of his opponent meets it with the pure force of reason and brings it to the ground without any hesitation he is ready for battle at every point and has never any doubt of the keenness of his weapons or the force of his blows next to the strength and straightforwardness of his intellect his most remarkable characteristic is fairness no fairer controversialist we believe ever entered the lists he never takes an undue advantage of his opponent he is tender to him personally while unsparing to his arguments he had himself been caught in the toils amongst which the jesuit was struggling and while he pursues and unwinds the entanglements one by one he never does so in a contemptuous spirit his magnanimity is beautiful considering the character of the attacks to which he was subjected by romanists and puritans alike he grows warm and indignant at times and he uses firm language especially when he resents the imputation of atheism and irreligion but he never smites as they sought to smite him we know of no personality that ever escaped his pen a half tender half compassionate god forbid i should think the like of you or for god's sake free yourself from the blind zeal for a little space is the utmost to which he yields of all theologians of the seventeenth century of any century perhaps chillingworth is one of the most thoroughly fair candid and open-minded temporarily a convert to romanism and actually for a while the inmate of a jesuit seminary the transparency of his manly and earnest spirit is never for a moment dimmed the same love of the truth and the same keenness in its search inspire him from first to last the idea of upholding a system merely because he had embraced it or an institution because he happened to belong to it would have been unintelligible to him his mind could rest in nothing short of clear and definitely reasoned convictions he must see the truth for himself and be able to give some reason for it why he held to it and why he rejected the contrary it was this that made men who misunderstood his point of view accuse him of inconstancy in religion and allege that according to his principles a man could be constant in no religion as he could not understand a mere blind adherence to any system merely because he had once accepted it so they could not understand his continual inquisitiveness and determination to see the truth more clearly why constantly be asking what is the sense of scripture what religion is best what church purest come do not wrangle but believe this which is virtually what his puritan opponent said to him represents the alternative state of mind according to a commonplace of almost all religious parties a man is supposed to be unsettled in religion if he is constantly asking questions if his mind is restlessly moving towards what seems to him a higher light while the religious inquirer on the other hand has no idea of religion which does not involve constant inquest and movement it is to him of the very nature of religious thought to be always moving to be always rising and so changing its relation to human systems 
certainly chillingworth's mind was of this order truth was to him one but its very simplicity made it all the more difficult to seize and while he kept his eye steadily fixed on it he was constantly readapting his attitude towards it and trying to get a clearer sight of it footnote he thus describes his own changes in religion very much in the spirit we have described them here and in the preceding pages Quote, i know of a man that of a moderate protestant turned a papist and the day that he did so as all things that are done are perfected some day or other was convicted in conscience that his yesterday's opinion was an error and yet methinks he was no schismatic for doing so and desires to be informed by you whether or no he was mistaken the same man afterwards upon better consideration became a doubting papist and of a doubting papist a confirmed protestant even yet this man thinks himself no more to blame for all these changes than a traveller who using all diligence to find the right way to some remote city where he had never been as this party i speak of had never been in heaven did yet mistake it and after find his error and amend it nay he stands upon his justification so far as to maintain that his alterations were the most satisfactory actions to himself that he ever did and the greatest victory that ever he obtained over himself and his affections to those things which in this world are most precious and whereas for god's sake and as he was really persuaded out of love to the truth he went upon a certain expectation of these inconveniences which to ungenerous natures are of all the most terrible so that although there was much weakness in some of these alterations yet certainly there was no wickedness neither does he yield his weakness altogether without apology seeing his deductions were rational and out of some principles commonly received by protestants as well as papists and which by his education had got possession of his understanding Close quote. End of footnote. it is this earnest high-mindedness this spirit of healthy rationality which gives such elevation purity and dignity to chillingworth's thought he is superior to all commonplace of his church or school all mere professionalism and nothing perhaps more marks the great writer in any department than this superiority a writer who is unable to rise above the level of his profession may be acute learned and able he may be a great authority on his own subject but he will never take a place in the world of thought and literature in order to do this he must show himself capable of rising above traditional or official limits and of perceiving the truth in its own light and vindicating it on the highest grounds of reason in all special departments of intellectual work and particularly in theology the highest minds have been of this order they have been thoroughly competent in their own department but also marked by a healthy openness of thought in other directions they have always recognized something higher than professional canons of opinion and carried the breath of nature so to speak and of universal reason into their work it is this which makes the distinction between such a writer as hooker and andrews for example the latter a man apparently of far more special ability than hooker he is said to have been master of fifteen languages but infinitely inferior in breadth and capacity of thought forgotten except by a few theological students who turn occasionally to his sermons while hooker continues and will ever continue one of the great classics of english literature it is this which distinguishes our author and sets him far above most of his theological contemporaries either anglican or puritan hammond or sanderson on the one side and owen to take the very highest example on the other in contrast to such writers chillingworth is a man of general and not merely of special theological culture he shows himself capable not merely of handling particular doctrinal points after the best manner of his school and of bringing logical skill and erudition to bear upon their support and illustration but moreover of dealing with questions in their most generalized intellectual shape and of bringing them to the test of the higher reason of all men 
and so it is that the religion of protestants like the laws of ecclesiastical polity has an unfading interest to the common educated intellect and not merely to the theological student it remains although in a less degree than the great work of hooker a living force in general literature a permanent monument of thought marking the advance of the human mind in the loftiest of all directions it is especially this higher thoughtfulness this touch of light from the altitudes of a divine philosophy which gives any life to theological polemics however able ingenious or successful for the time an argumentative work may be if it have nothing of this if it never soar beyond the confines of its special subject nor start any principles of general application it will be found to lose hold of the succeeding generations and gradually to pass from the ranks of literature it may be sought after and highly prized by certain minds but the progressive intelligence finds no meaning in it it may have served a cause silenced an enemy and even gained a distinguished victory but it has done nothing to advance the course of thought it has opened no tracks which have been further cleared and expanded and so it passes out of sight and deserves to do so great as may have been its temporary reputation it is a distinct gain to literature that an oblivion frequently rapid always sure should thus overtake the great mass of controversial writings which contain so little that is fitted to elevate or enrich human thought to be forgotten is their happiest fate but let a fair generous and noble reason like hooker's or chillingworth's irradiate a controversy and it acquires permanent life and interest it becomes a mirror of higher truth and men return to it in after generations to study the principles which it helped to elucidate and to refresh themselves in its light the style of chillingworth is the natural expression of his thought simple strong and earnest occasionally rugged and vehement particularly like his thought it is without any artifice he is concerned with what he has to say not with his mode of saying it and having thrown aside almost all the scholastic pedantries which in his time still clung to theological style he gives fair play to his native sense and vigor his vehemence is apt to hurry him into disorder but also often breaks into passages of lofty and powerful eloquence if we compare his style with that of hooker or bacon it is inferior in richness compass and power but superior in flexibility rapidity and point it turns and doubles upon his adversary with an impetuosity and energy that carry the reader along and serve to relieve the tedious levels of the argument if he must be ranked upon the whole greatly below such writers as we have mentioned he is yet in this as in other respects much above most of his contemporary divines the pages of laud or of his biographer halen or even of hammond are barren and unreadable beside those of the religion of protestants and even the richer beauties of taylor embedded amidst many pedantries and affectations pall in comparison with his robust simplicity and energy with writers of the ordinary westminster school like his opponent chanel it would be absurd to compare him they are utterly without grace life or power even the best puritan writers like howe and baxter scarcely reach in their best passages his manly and inspiriting eloquence Two let us now turn to the argument of his work and especially to the principles on which it rests the main question which it raises is the always vital one as to the grounds of religious certitude how are we to know the truth in religion on what basis must faith rest who or what is the arbiter of religious opinion this is the great issue between him and his romanist opponent it is unnecessary for us we have already said to take up the successive details of assault and retort between them but it is important for the sake of clearness to understand the manner in which they approach each other the line of their controversial march towards the great principles in which the chief interest of the discussion lies 
after a detailed answer to the preface of the author of charity maintained the argument opens with the question of charity as between the two sides is it uncharitable for papists to maintain that protestants cannot be saved this had been the special question between not the jesuit and dr potter the one maintaining that protestancy unrepented destroys salvation the other that want of charity is justly charged on all romanists who affirm this proposition chillingworth takes up the controversy from this point the first pamphlet of Knott was published in sixteen thirty potter's answer in sixteen thirty three and then in the following year the jesuit returned to the charge in mercy and truth or charity maintained by catholics and it is to the successive chapters of this book printed in front of his own that chillingworth replies in his opening chapter the jesuit holds to his point but not without the qualifications repeated to our own day by all exclusive sacerdotalists anglican or roman Quote, our meaning is not that we give protestants over to reprobation we hope we pray for their conversion neither is our censure directed to particular persons the tribunal of particular judgments is god's alone want of opportunity of knowing catholic truth want of capacity to understand it light declaring to men their errors or contrition retracting them in the moment of death are allowed as excuses in such particular cases says not we wish more apparent signs of salvation but do not give any dogmatical sentence of perdition in his answer chillingworth makes good use of the concessions of his opponent as to the salvability of protestants the question is no longer he says quote, simply whether protestancy unrepented destroys salvation as it was at first proposed but whether protestancy in itself apart from ignorance and contrition destroys salvation Close quote. not has admitted in short that a protestant may be saved if he be either an ignorant protestant not having had the means or capacity of knowing any better or if he join with his protestantism the antidote of a general repentance though protestants may not be saved at so easy a rate as papists yet even papists being the judges they may obtain salvation heaven is not inaccessible their errors are not impracticable isthmuses between them and salvation nothing can be finer than the courteous sneer with which chillingworth points his reply here all the more impressive that he seldom indulges in this vein for my part he says quote, such is my charity to you that considering what great necessity you have as much as any christian society in the world that the sanctuaries of ignorance and dependence should always stand open i can hardly persuade myself so much as in my most sacred consideration to divest you of these so needful qualifications but whensoever your errors superstitions and impieties come on to my mind my only comfort is that the doctrine and practice too of repentance is yet remaining in your church and that though you put on a face of confidence of your innocence in point of doctrine yet you will be glad to stand in the eye of many as well as your fellows and not be so stout as to refuse either god's pardon or the king's he then engages to meet his opponent on the more limited question as he concludes it to be whether protestantism possesses so much natural malignity as to be in itself apart from ignorance and contrition destructive of salvation the combatants start with an acknowledged proposition on both sides chillingworth grants that there must be a visible church stored with all helps necessary to salvation and further that the church must have sufficient means of determining all controversies in religion which are necessary to be determined but sufficient is not with him the same as effectual a distinction he urges which his opponent cannot overlook quote, for that the same means may be sufficient for the compassing an end and not effectual you must not deny who hold that god gives to all men sufficient means of salvation and yet that all are not saved 
nor is it requisite that all controversies whatsoever but only such as involve salvation should be determined here where so much of the general argument is to rest he discriminates his ground carefully from the first the end he says must be the measure of the means here and everywhere Quote, if i have no need to be at london i have no need of a horse to carry me thither if i have no need to fly i have no need of wings so if i can be saved without knowing this or that definitely i have no need to know it the church needs no means for determining points in which salvation is not involved is it necessary that all controversies in religion should be determined or is it not Close quote. the question plainly put contains its own answer even to the romanist in whose church as in all churches many questions remain undetermined or open questions so far therefore there is common ground between shillingworth and his opponent they advance up to a certain point on the same line of argument there must be a visible church in possession of the means of salvation this primary generality raises no discussion further they agree that there must be within the church an arbiter of religious truth some infallible means of religious certitude the latter expression with both writers comes to the same thing as the former where there are means of religious certitude there are means of salvation and chillingworth is content to use the word infallible no less than his opponent footnote the means of deciding controversies on faith and religion he grants must be endued with a universal infallibility in what it propoundeth for a divine truth End footnote. but here the apparent agreement between them proves to be entirely hollow the words they use have not the same meaning religious truth is not the same thing to each their mode of reaching it is entirely different the question in short of the determination of religious truth or what is necessary to salvation opens up their antagonism from its roots all the other points of their argument branch off from this and are virtually settled by the conclusions to which they come here while avoiding the details of the controversy it may be useful to exhibit in a table the course of discussion as it unfolds itself in successive chapters this may be stated as follows confining ourselves as much as possible to the language used by chillingworth and his opponent one the question as to religious certitude or the means whereby the truths of revelation are conveyed to our understanding and controversies in faith and religion are determined two the distinction of points fundamental and not fundamental whether it is pertinent in the controversy three the question whether the apostles creed contains all fundamental points or all points necessary to be believed four and five whether separation from the church of rome constitutes schism and heresy and six which is a mere corollary from four and five whether protestants are bound in charity to themselves to become reunited to the roman church a mere glance at this table serves to show how the whole controversy is really summed up in the twofold question as to the source of religious truth and the character or sum of this truth to this question therefore as handled by our controversialists we address ourselves it assumes a very speedy and direct issue the source of religious certitude the infallible means of determining religious truth not says is the church by which of course he means the roman catholic church take away the roman principle of infallibility and all religion falls to the ground none can deny the infallible authority of the church are his words but he must abandon all inspired faith and true religion if he but understand himself again if the infallibility of such a public authority be once impeached what remains but that every man is given over to his own wit and discourse the principle of not therefore was the principle of the church's infallible voice is any man in doubt let him ask the church 
the church is divinely authorized to pronounce what is true and what every man is therefore bound to believe this principle whatever practical difficulties may be involved in it is at least in its generality intelligible and consistent the position of chillingworth as opposed to this principle is the well-known protestant adage so often quoted in his own words the bible and the bible only is the religion of protestants the bible not the church is the organ of religious truth and the only rule of faith this is the protestant principle asserted by our author and professed by all protestant churches in its generality but the merit of chillingworth of course does not consist in his having enunciated this general principle it did not remain for him to do this it is his interpretation of the principle which constitutes all his distinction as a religious thinker which could alone have given him any distinction it is plain for example that when it is said to a man the voice of the church is authoritative or on the other hand the voice of scripture is authoritative that the man is not greatly helped in a practical point of view for he must then immediately ask how am i to be sure of the voice of the church or how am i to be sure of the voice of scripture it is here that the real pinch lies to take an illustration there are ultra anglo-catholics who start from the same principle as the roman catholics with both of whom the church is always the last word but then the question arises which is the church and here the anglican high churchman and the roman high churchman separate in a similar manner with the presbyterian and independent or still more strikingly with the calvinist and arminian and even socinian of the old type alike the bible is the last word only the bible but then not to speak of the modern question untouched by chillingworth what is the bible the further question at once arises what is the voice of the bible what its true meaning and here these several classes of protestants separate after having gained an apparent certainty in the assertion of a general principle uncertainty again begins admitting scripture to be the rule of faith how are we to know the meaning of scripture now it is here that chillingworth has done real service here where the real difficulty lies he has cleared up the question and settled it in the only way in which it can ever be consistently settled by protestants we will endeavor first to state his conclusions in our own language as briefly as possible and then quote several passages from his work which set forth his views fully end of chapter five part three